0: Welcome back to Beyond Well. This is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And every week we tackle another topic that helps add to our mental health toolbox. And recently we partnered with TMS Active Recovery to make sure that you or anyone you know who might be experiencing treatment resistant depression know that there is an FDA-approved non-pharmaceutical option for treatment that is covered by most insurances. TMS is short for transcranial magnetic stimulation, and it's helpful for people whose antidepressants have stopped working or those whose side effects from pharmaceutical drugs are just too tough to be able to take medication. TMS therapy is covered by most insurance plans and with multiple locations in Oregon and Washington. Learn more at activerecoverytms.com. Welcome back to Beyond Well, I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives and the situation with Russia and Ukraine is ever changing and causing a lot of stress for a lot of our listeners. It's perfect for us that we have an expert in Dr. Jim Polo, not only for his clinical expertise, but also with your military expertise. I mean, for the first time, I get to talk to somebody who has this behavioral health lens and this incredible view and knowledge of having worked in war, understanding war, studying war.
1: So a reminder for you, I not only deployed to war in Iraq, I also actually deployed in the Kosovo crisis in the Balkans. So I was there during that event which is a slightly different uh, crisis. I was in Honduras when Haiti fell. And I was one of the individuals that was looking at the medical aspects of what it's like to have a country fall apart. And obviously, the end of my military career was as a policy advisor to political appointees to two different administrations. And my scope of responsibility was, what do we need to be focusing on from a mental health perspective through the lens of a country that is at war? Wow. Because we were at war, the war on terror, which was the wrong way to label it. You, yeah. you will never win a war against terror because terror yeah. will never when go you away. That,
0: exactly. When you call it that, exactly. you call it that. I want to start with this observation. I, I've been watching a lot of the news out of Ukraine. And one of the things that they have done is they have sent mental health advisors into those bomb shelters to help children in particular understand what was happening. Because I can imagine in the mind of a child, the external um, noise destruction, illness, is so unbelievably terrifying. Yes. Do other countries handle these issues better? Other countries that have been at war before? Other countries that know the importance of looking at mental health very early on?
1: The way I would answer that question is I would say there's two things to think about. Fundamentally, children develop with some key things that are similar regardless of culture and regardless of country that are part of their growth and development to becoming adults within the context of where they live. Do some cultures, some societies have better resilience simply because they've been more exposed? Absolutely.
0: Hmm. Huh.
1: Absolutely. Wow. So, you know, if you're a child growing up in Syria, where you went through an experience of what's happened relative to having war near you, yeah, that does help build some resilience. It also creates some trauma. Keep in mind that children also take their emotional lead, oftentimes, from the adults and the parents around them. And the reason why this becomes so critical when we simply think about the American perspective is this war currently is out of sight, out of mind in the sense that yeah. it's way over somewhere else, okay? Well, history shows us what it's like to sometimes believe we don't have to be involved. This is what World War One and World War II were all about, where suddenly a war that was way over somewhere else, we became a primary player. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're going to get involved in this war. What I am suggesting is that this is a global event of which we will be involved in some way, shape, fashion, or form, even if it's trying to avoid. And that creates uncertainty.
0: I think one of the reasons we're having this conversation is that I feel, as you do, that the drumbeat of news is getting more uh, sensationalized, more doomsday-ish, more talk of nuclear war. And I'm thinking I'm aware of limiting my media footprint so that I don't get anxiety ridden. I can't imagine what's happening for people who don't have any boundaries around how much news they're consuming right now.
1: There's a couple issues here that are really important to kind of separate. So first of all, we live in a world where You can find out what's going on somewhere else instantaneously. And furthermore, you can see it in color and graphic detail. That, That has huge power, particularly when you talk about sensationalizing. A picture of downtown Mariupol that shows you that all the buildings have been leveled is overwhelming, far more so than reading an article about it. Our technology today Our drive to have information immediately shapes how we then respond to it. I'm not an expert on what media is 100% accurate, what media is embellished, or what media is actually inaccurate and purposely inaccurate, because they all exist. You, You know this better than I do. What I do know is there are some fundamental things that, despite what's accurate, still hold true. Number one, Russia is a very large country led by a leader that is unpredictable yeah. and led by a leader that is doing some things that seemingly don't make sense and they do not take into account the well-being of the community outside of his own. I don't say that lightly because I think we live in a world today where we can't be isolationistic and only think about our own needs. We have to think about how we fit into the fabric of a global community. And for right or for wrong, Russia is the largest nuclear power in the world. That that's just a fact. I hope that nothing moves in that direction. And I don't think it will, but I don't think anybody can guarantee that. Mm -mm. I don't think anybody can guarantee that. And the problem is there's so many unknowns going on right now that it is hard to determine Well, what's real, uh, what's not real, what are the most important things, and how do we get involved in such a way that we're a help to the situation uh, without contributing to something that could be catastrophic.
0: I was thinking about our last conversation about um, internal well-being and you taught me about the locus of control around understanding that if you have the mindset that there are things that you can be doing for your well-being and things that you can be doing that you can control rather than world events just happening at you, you're in a much better emotional state. Correct. How does the locus of control work when it truly is outside of your ability to impact?
1: The first thing I would tell you is that It's not always easy, and sometimes it occurs in a displaced manner. So let me give you an example. Adolescents tend to be idealistic. Adolescents, you're not going to... You're not going to prevent them from knowing what's going on, and you're not going to prevent them from, from scoping out the internet. You're not going to prevent them from, from seeing bad images. So they're going to have questions, and they're going to have some ideas that tend to be kind of idealistic. That's part of adolescence, where they kind of think there's a, a thing that everybody should be doing because it's the right thing to do until they go off to college or, or leave home and realize the, world, the real world's a little bit more hard than that. <laughs> and so for adolescents, you know, I've advised parents, your child may feel like they need to do something Mm -hmm. And as minor as that might seem to you, this is important for them. This can be anything from volunteering to pack aid packets that we're gonna send off to the Ukraine, or maybe it's donating to a particular fund, even if it's a very small amount, but that action is part of control. You can control the action that is in the service of something you believe is important. Obviously the average US citizen has no ability to really influence what's going to happen in this war. This is not even within the America. It's way above us, and it's not within the the American framework. That doesn't mean that that you just throw in the towel and say, there's nothing I can do. Something that was very true for the pandemic, which will hold now. We can sometimes get glued to the media, and we have to be very careful about that, both for ourselves and for our children. So I'll give you another example. I have a son-in-law who's a very smart, bright man. He's been tracking the Ukraine crisis on TV. My little grandson is not quite five. Uh, He's frequently in the background. It's easy to think a four-year-old doesn't really know what's going on or doesn't really understand what they're saying on TV because, frankly, half the time he doesn't understand what the cartoons are saying. So about a week ago, he drew a picture, and the picture that he drew was three people all kind of in a woodsy area with this big square in the background that looked like it was dark and each of the little people were all holding guns he'd never drawn anything like this wow and i asked him and and none of this was emotionally stressful for him and i and i asked him oh what's this a picture of oh those are the bad guys oh and what are the bad guys doing bad guys they're they're going here and he was pointing to the big black box i said well what's going to happen in this picture remember i'm a child psychiatrist so we do a (laughs) lot of art therapy with little kids to get them to 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 talk (laughs) yeah um And the story that unfolds is basically he had three ideas kind of that are rolling around in his head. These people have guns, which are bad. There's some kind of conflict going on. And at a core level, this was a little anxiety provoking for him because he really didn't understand it. And I talked to my daughter, and my son-in-law. I said, "So, how much have you been watching the Ukraine crisis, and how much of that is he seeing or he is he listening to, even if he's not in in in, in looking at the TV?" And the reality oh. is, uh, they confessed, "Yeah, I guess we hadn't even thought about that." I said, "Yeah, he's too young. I, I would give you different advice if, if he was seven right now. I'd give you different advice if he was fourteen, but at the age of four, you really need to be shielding him from yeah. something that's very anxiety-provoking. That, frankly." he can't really handle yet at the age of four and doesn't need to. It's not, this is not helpful to him.
0: Well, I would just also say that the most used clips are those of mothers with children and children crying and of children being abandoned and the refugee crisis, children. And so little kids see the, the image of other kids who look like them and they understand, oh, this could hurt me too.
1: Absolutely, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And And there's something in there that is so important to recognize. All cultures, for whatever reason, really value the innocence of childhood. Mm -hmm. And so we all see travesty when kids suffer because intuitively we know kids are never the cause of their own suffering. They're the collateral damage from the adults around them making bad decisions. This is universal. The reason why I think those pictures can be highly damaging, and you got to think about this, the Ukrainian population is a largely white population that, frankly, if you look at a picture of a Ukrainian family Mm -hmm. with no caption and no audio, they could just as well be from Kansas. And so the reality is a child does say that could be me Mm -hmm. versus when you show them a picture of the travesties that were occurring in the Sudan. Now only our African-American kids would say, oh, that could be me, whereas a young child that maybe is not African-American, still has this ability to displace and say, well, that's not really quite like me. Right. And it's not because they're discriminatory. It's because they're they're trying to not have it be them. So people will look for ways to not identify with something that is bad because as soon as you identify it, then you have to accept the reality, could it be me?
0: And so, Dr. Polo, you've made it clear that under the age of five, this is just a topic and images that shouldn't be seen. At what age can you begin to talk to kids about the reality of what's occurring and what war means? That's a great question. First of all,
1: there is no right age. What I usually will tell parents, and I did this a lot uh, as a child psychiatrist, I dealt with a lot of families that actually did deploy to Iraq and Mm -hmm. Afghanistan and young kids who had actual parents leaving kids on military bases whose parents weren't going anywhere, but everybody around them was going. Okay. So what I usually will tell parents is, Hey, look, when your child is in school, you lose the ability to control everything that they might hear. The reality is when a child is still living at home and hasn't really quite ventured out into school, uh, you have a lot more control of shielding them. Now, for the average three, four, five-year-old, I wouldn't voluntarily tell them, hey, son, let's sit down. I want to just let you know there's a war going on. Right. I'm not sure that would be recommended as being at all meaningful or helpful to that child. But when a child is hearing about some things that don't make sense, they will start to ask questions and that's when you need to be there and be there well. So for example, mm-hmm. uh, let's say a child comes home from school, something major happened uh, that you know about because you've read about it in the media, you don't know what the kid does or doesn't know, asking open-ended questions because for all you know, maybe the kid has heard about it from somebody else at school and they haven't asked yet what this means and that's how you can kind of figure out, first of all, how aware are they? One of the challenges is that Sometimes parents, in their zeal to help their kids, assume what they must be thinking or assume what they must be afraid of. And so when it comes to something as complex as you know global conflict, war, whatever, it's important to remind yourself, what is their perspective that creates anxiety for them mm-hmm. that you can focus in on? They may not be worried about the fact that buildings are burning down. They mm-hmm. may be more focused on the fact that kids don't have toys. Right. They may be worried about the fact that people are dying, but they may have no conceptualization of who they are. So mm-hmm. you've got to really think about what is their perspective yeah. and what are their fears and concerns and address those. couple of key points. You should never lie to a child, mm-hmm. but you want to speak at their level. It would make no sense, for example, to say to a child, that's really nothing. That's just uh, whatever. That that would be minimizing it in such a way that the child is going to think twice about trust when it comes to understanding reality. By the same token, you don't need to get into an esoteric discussion and explain nuclear warheads and you know the history of World War II, because the average six-year-old won't know anything about that. So you've got to talk at their level to help them understand the information they've gotten. You don't have to get them to over-understand it, just understand the information they've gotten. And then what is most critical is for parents to do two things. First of all, message to the child a sense of safety and security. Mm-hmm. Kids are looking to their parents and the adults around them, usually for a sense of security, because kids will not tell you this, but they know they cannot survive on their own. Right. And when they get worried and upset, they kind of rely on the adults around them. So if the parent or the adults around them are worried and frenetic, the child will be anxious. So I I caution parents, you have to be really at the top of your game in terms of transmitting safety and security and, hey, I'm going to take care of you. Things are going to be okay. But you don't lie to the child. You you don't want to misrepresent what's going on, but you don't need to over over explain everything.
0: That makes so much sense because it's kind of the same, really guidelines for birds and the bees. You know, ask them to ask what they want to know. Answer as simply as you possibly can. And don't get in deeper than you need to or Uh, even understand. (laughs) You
1: know, that's such a great example. The the child that says, where do babies come from? Sometimes saying, well, they come from mommy is all they needed to know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just wanted to yeah. make sure they weren't coming from daddy. Yeah, and we're thinking they want to know how to make them, which is a different <laughs> issue than where do they come from? Okay,
0: so. so let's let's transition then to the overanxious adult, because boy, I mean, coming off of COVID, we are already in a state of so many people not really reporting good mental health. And now I heard someone say the other day, it's like being kicked when you're down. Yes. I thought that was a great description. Yes.
1: So, this also takes on degrees of, of complexity because adult really is a very wide age span. And I, I would offer to you that young adults, particularly young millennials, mm-hmm. are going to be impacted differently, let's say, than middle aged, you know, working uh, individuals in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and yet again, different even from those that are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And we have a healthy percentage of the population that's already been through recent combat type activity, right? That was very much in the media and front face forwarding for the entire American public. I mean, right. I can't tell you how many times when I was on active duty in uniform where people would say, thank you for your service. Thank mm. you for your service, knowing full well that I probably had deployed because I had all these things on my, on my uniform. So there's a greater sense of a public and a community that has some experience to relate to what that means. And if you think about it, what did we do during that conflict? We put a lot of media about what was going on to bring it home to people who then got quite invested in the fact of trying to understand what was going on and and big questions about whether we should even be there or not. I'm not suggesting at all that we're going to be involved in this crisis. What I am suggesting is that people might worry about whether we're going to be involved and you can't ignore that because, frankly, mm-hmm. there's there's no guarantee that mm-hmm. we wouldn't be involved. And so, consequently, when it comes to the adult population, you know, young people are going to be thinking about, well, am I going to have to interrupt my career? Mm-hmm. Remember, they're still at that age of I- idealistic, you know, world yeah. dynamics. Middle-aged folks, maybe if they've had experience, will be thinking about what could this do to them from their framework. They're more yeah. worried about the economic impact, the global impact of, of what this could create. Older folks like myself, think twice about their own kids. Mm -hmm. I have two sons that are both in their 30s and they are strapping young lads that are Mm -hmm. quite healthy. And I don't take it lightly that if we were to find ourselves in any conflict in the immediate future, they're the right age. Adults will look at this very differently. And it goes back to to something that you highlighted is what's happening creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And that uncertainty is felt through the lens of the actual individual. So somebody that's in the rural area of Idaho is going to look at it very differently than somebody that might be in the metropolitan area of Dallas.
0: Yeah, that is a good place to wind up episode one of this interview. Next week is part two, and we're going to continue to talk about some of the ways that you can continue to psychologically ground yourself during this ongoing conflict with Russia and Ukraine thanks a lot for listening. And if you love the podcast, please take the time to give us a thumbs up on Apple. That's the only place currently that you can give us a review. And we sure appreciate your input. Make it a great day. Fora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Fora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.